Welcome to episode two of Ground Story Around the Block, an occasional podcast uncovering solutions to untold effects of gentrification on the arts here at home in Canada and around the world. My name is Jessa Aguilo. Recognizing the abiding but progressively threatened roles spaces of faith have had in the connectedness of our communities, our guest today is Kendra Fry of Toronto's Faith in the Common Good, National Trust for Canada, and Trinity St. Paul's Centre for Faith, Justice, and the Arts. Ground Story Around the Buck is made possible through generous support of Canada Council for the Arts and Ontario Trillium Foundation. For more information about this podcast, please visit us at groundstory.ca. To learn more about our guest, please visit faithcommongood.org, nationaltrustcanada.ca, and trinitystpauls.ca. Well, Kendra Fry, I wondered if we might start our conversation today about your ground story and what brought you to where you are now here in Toronto. Sure. Um, So a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast would know me more from my theater background. So I uh, studied at York University and then started as a stage manager. And then from stage management, uh, with the help of the fantastic Giovanni C., I translated myself into general management first with Cahoots Theater Projects. So that was with Giovanni C. and Marjorie Chan, who are amazing people. And then along with Theatre Centre as well, with uh, the glorious Franco Bonnie in the old Theatre Centre, yes. not the new one, which we're kind of sitting right beside here. Um, and then from there on to Theatre Pass Marai with Andy McKim, where I was for five years. So that's kind of my background and my soul was um, in theatre for a long time. And then just about six years ago, five and a half, six years ago, um, some things happened within my family that made it complicated to remain at Passamurai, where I loved being and I loved the people there, but I needed to be closer to home. And this city being the scale that it is, I needed to find something that was 20 minutes from my home so I could go back and forth, not an hour on the subway. And uh, that brought me, uh, weirdly, when I look back on it now, to Trinity St. Paul's Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts. Um, do you want me to say a little bit here about what Trinity St. Paul's is? Yeah, is that the, the place of context? For those uh, outside of Toronto that would not maybe have heard of it, although it's quite an inter- internationally renowned kind of model. Yeah, so Trinity St. Paul's is a uh, professional recital hall, daycare, school, restaurant, church, um, community center that's right at Lawrence Bedina here in Toronto. And uh, so it is a, a church. I work for the United Church of Canada. And about 30 years ago, uh, they came up with this idea of themselves as a center for faith, justice, and the arts, which is typically how they refer to themselves. So Trinity St. Paul's Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts, and made a number of collaborative relationships. Uh, the best known in the arts would be with Tafel Music. So many people will refer to Trinity St. Paul's as the Tafel Music Church. Uh, and so Trinity St. Paul's was looking for a new direction about six years ago to go from a vision of being a building that hosts lots of other people um, and had lots of other people using it to a more inclusive uh, cultural community-based approach to that, that uh, envisioned that as a missional approach uh, as opposed to a financial reality. And so Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra had been able to uh, get a, a lot of funds and Trinity St. Paul's raised a lot and there was a number of renovations that took place and I arrived just at that moment. As uh, the renovation happened physically, the renovation happened culturally as well 
that introduced this idea that it could be the center of a, a renaissance of imagining ourselves as a broader community that's not just about art, but is about art and social justice and faith and kids and adults and everybody in one place in one um, messy collision of community, as I usually refer to it. And so I came on there as the general manager, which led interestingly to all kinds of other things that have happened since, which we'll talk more about, but basically to the idea of Trinity St. Paul's as a model for all of us for how to use space for the common good. Beautiful. Um, What does gentrification mean to you in the context of your own personal life, but also from Trinity St. Paul's? Sure. Uh, So a couple things. So personally, uh, my husband and I lived at a really awesome loft in an old E.J. Lennox building. So E.J. Lennox was the architect of old City Hall, amongst other things. And so there's this gorgeous loft at Queen and Broadview um, at the uh, the corner there. Uh, and it uh, we lived in that loft up until just about a year after we got married. And it was 60 stairs up to this wow. loft, okay. which then had a spiral staircase of 20 through the <laughs> middle of it and massive ceilings. And it was really gorgeous. And we loved being there. We loved that place. But at that time, it actually wasn't even called Leslieville at that time. At that time, it was still South Riverdale, and it was super dodgy, and, you know, Jilly's was still there. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so, and then interestingly, speaking about gentrification, uh, the Russell Crowe uh, movie, Cinderella Man, filmed there just about a year before we left. And they filmed there for so long that they actually created false facades for all of the buildings wow. along that street. And so most of what we now experience as Leslieville is actually a a false film facade that was created uh, for them. And then that attracted attention to that area because then it looked really cool. It looked like 1930s gangsta kind of cool, right? And so uh, then the city put in new sidewalks and the new sidewalks had these uh, glorious blue lines that went all along them that looked like waves. And I remember my husband and I saying, "Uh uh-oh. Um, when the city starts putting in, uh, you know, blue wave lines into your sidewalks, you know, you're an area that's ripe for development. And of course, yes, uh, there was a huge amount of development that came after that. And all those restaurants that are there now, when we lived there, there was one restaurant. My husband works in theater. We would beg the restaurant to stay open so that when he came home, we could go and have some mussels and a glass of wine together. And the, the wonderful owners would stay open so that we could go to that one place. So of course, now, if you've been along there, it's, it's not quite as intense as Ossington, but it's pretty close in terms of the number of restaurants and things. Um, So when we went to buy there, it was impossible. And we couldn't stay in the loft because I'm not carrying a stroller up 60 stairs. You can just forget it. Or a child. And the child definitely would have fallen through the the open spiral staircase. And so we started looking uh, where to move to. And we kept going east and east and east and east. Okay, leaving Toronto? Not not quite. Not quite. uh, Within an inch. So we're at Maine and Danforth, which is, in fact, four blocks from what's defined as Scarborough, I think. Um, and you know what? I loved Maine and Danforth. The community there is amazing and it means a lot to me and I've never been happier than I've been there. The people there and the variety of the things that we are engaged in is a great source of joy to me. Um, and, and like silly things, right? So the little coffee shops came into that area and then the Starbucks came and then it closed. We're like one of the very few areas in this city that the Starbucks 
didn't make it because we were already settled in with the local coffee shops. And, and uh, as it turns out, a lot of people at Maine and Danforth don't actually have the money for uh, a Starbucks latte. So that's just a little bit about what the forces of gentrification mean to me. And then, of course, being in the unexpectedly lovely position of being able to own a house in Toronto, um, your house becomes your retirement plan. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. So you're living in it and renovating it for yourself, but also imagining if I need to tag out, this is actually the only money I have. So what do I do with that, right? So we just finished a, a big renovation on our place and we ended up choosing for us. But, you know, there were moments when we were painting the walls of our dining room, this deep forest green where we questioned um if we need to leave here, is anybody else going to believe that our ceiling is forest green? And then we were like, forget it. We're doing it anyways. Um, so that's a long answer to what gentrification means for me personally. Are you seeing a neighborhood change in Maine and Danforth? Mm. Like, are you seeing more artists moving into your neighborhood? Or well, you, or there's always still- actually been a huge artist community at Maine and Danforth. Mm-hmm. But that artist community is interestingly quite engaged in questions not interestingly, this is probably quite typical of artist communities, quite engaged in questions of social justice. So I see those artists working with the high, low, mixed community to try and figure out what they can add and, and how they can be a part of things. You know, I'm part of a, an East End group of uh, artists and arts administrators who sponsored um, three Syrian families, two of whom are here and one more is coming. And that's the other place where gentrification came into play out in the East End was trying to find the first two individuals. They came as, as single individuals, uh, trying to find them an apartment for under 700 a month, which was what we had budgeted and, you know, working our angles. And we had angles to work, right? Not everybody has an angle to work. Yep. And we had a good story. So story is often the source of how we work through these things. But no, so the gentrification forces are not happening yet at Maine and Danforth, although there are a ton of towers about to be built. But interestingly, there are already a ton of uh, very below market towers in that area. So it's a combo of like towers and houses. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what the next few years bring. And honestly, the schools can't take any more kids. So I don't know. We'll see. And what about your work relationship? So Trinity St. Paul's and other organizations that you're helping to advise on, on regeneration of faith-based places? Sure. What, so, what does gentrification mean to you in that context? Yeah, so Trinity St. Paul's is dead center in the annex. Yes. Right? Yes. So that's its own particular thing. But so it's been there for a very long time. As has the annex. So we're at this yeah. interesting place in the annex right now where... Ownership there is a, a lifetime commitment. People don't leave the annex, but now they're leaving because they're becoming of an age, you know, and we've been um, in conversation as Trinity St. Paul's with a lot of developers who are starting to work in the annex area and are seeking to build at a higher height, but with the mission of bringing in both young families to that area and providing a retirement destination for the seniors who no longer can keep those annex houses. So it's been interesting um, being invited to the table, and we have been invited to the table a lot on that, to talk about how you build a community that's been based on uh, single-family dwellings and, and student living as well, but student family student living in those single-family dwellings, not in condo towers or apartments, right? Uh, how do you introduce new methodologies and new density into that area and respect the character of that neighborhood? 
And then Fraternity St. Paul's itself, I mean, we occupy an entire city block. It's 44,000 square feet. And so uh, being a part of a neighborhood that has is about to see a lot of change and knowing that will remain the constant and knowing that the people who come next into those houses will have to be people of some means because those houses are not going to be inexpensive. And so what does that mean when we're, we have a single focused mission of, of, well, we have many missions, but the building part of the mission is, is people over profit, right? And so how do you relate to people over profit within your community when the people who are coming into that community now maybe have more means is a question that will be interesting to see over the next little while, so... Are you seeing ripple effects on Trinity St. Paul's with the, the new developments and the plans are happening at Bloor and Bathurst and maybe further down Bloor and the kind of the Bloor corridor? Not yet. I mean, it's interesting to work with those developers and to try to talk about what's needed. So, you know, traditionally, Trinity St. Paul's and the Miles Nadell Jewish Community Center, who we work very closely with as well, are invited to the table for these conversations. And then partway through, the developers will say something like, you know, we're bringing this many more people, you know, you, it'll be that many more people using your services. And then those two organizations say, uh, yeah, actually, we can't take any more people. Like, we are at capacity. Um, so... We need to think about what we build next and how we enhance what's already there for the people of that community and particularly a community center, right? Like, so we have the Miles Nadell, um, but it's not, it's not a city-run community center. So I'm curious to see how the city is going to look at this new density and how they're going to apply the Sector 37s mm -hmm. towards it to talk about, uh, you know, sport and uh, recreation and public space. So, uh, because neither the Miles Nadell nor Trinity St. Paul's have anywhere to grow to. There's no adding. So yeah, it's an interesting time. And for us, uh, an interesting time to, uh, have people really envision us as their community center, um, without reference to the idea that it's a church. And perhaps that has a lot to do with being a United church, which is broadly speaking open already. But also, you know, with the addition of the uh, Reverend Sherry DeNovo, who was formerly the member of provincial parliament for Parkdale High Park, I suppose for even more people, it becomes evident that uh, everybody's welcome, right? Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um, I guess the two questions that kind of come together, um, how have you and your community been impacted by gentrification and, and do you see yourselves and your community potentially even contributing to the effects of gentrification? Um, the kind of the standard narrative in the community is that, uh, or at least of gentrification, is that artists are seen as the leading edge of gentrification. They're the first to move into a depressed neighborhood. The annex is not a depressed neighborhood, but Maine and Danforth perhaps is. Artists are one of the first to move in and they cr create a certain cachet in that neighborhood by having arts events, which brings tourists from other parts of the city that are looking for services. So a cafe moves in next door. And before you know it, you see a lot of neighborhood change that uh, displaces some of the lower income communities that have been there often for a very long time. So that's kind of the standard narrative of gentrification and the role of the arts that I hear anyway. Um, do you buy into that narrative? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, uh, to be clear, I, I don't... Uh, 
my new identity uh, uh, working on this kind of stuff is somewhat new, so I don't have data to support my That's opinion okay. on this. There's feelings it, it's and, it's and straight up my here. opinion. And my opinion is that the identification of artist communities with the process of gentrification is actually a situation that we have created, not in fact necessarily by gentrifying communities, but by being really good advocates, right? And so um, we are fantastically good, you know, via particularly, you know, TAPA and Business for the Arts, and we're, we're good at telling our story in this city. So the process of being good at telling your story and telling City Hall and others what it is you need as groups of people means that you become identified with the issue that you're talking about, right? So we have been talking about for 15 years, um, in you know, the need for investment in the arts. And that has been consistently, particularly via the Friends of the Arts Network that goes and does advocacy at City Hall every year. Coming up February 8th, by the way, just telling you. Um, that uh, that group of people has always linked their conversations about what the arts needs to increased funding, but also a livable city. So there's been a lot of talk about a livable city in terms of transit and in terms of cost mm-hmm. of places to live. But the nature of us talking about that makes it our issue and then links it to the arts in a way that I don't think is necessarily actually how that's happening, right? So, okay, yes, artists move into neighborhoods. So I would argue that, first of all, Artists see more neighborhoods. So the average person uh, has a number of destinations they go to in the course of their daily lives. So they're going to have their work. They're going to have their home. They're going to have their friends. Maybe there's the place where their kid does their activities, right? So, I don't know, maybe 10 destinations that they regularly go to. Well, if you take that work part and now there are 30 work destinations you go to, or if, like my my partner, you're an IATSE technician, maybe it's even 50 work destinations that you go to um, in the work of doing film and theater and, uh, you know, opera and every other last thing, you see the whole city. And so your lens is extraordinarily wide when you go looking for a place to live. And so, yes, we're often the leading edge of moving places, but I think that that may be because we've been introduced to them earlier. Now, I'd be interested to know, um, is, is it the arts or is it just that we identify ourselves as a group, right? Like it could be that bike couriers are having that much effect on gentrification, that they're all moving to a neighborhood and buying all kinds of food and, you know, biking back and forth and making it a livable place where people walk and are present, right? I, I don't know that it's necessarily us. I think that we have owned it um, by making it an issue that we're interested in. And certainly the reflections I get back from City Hall and my work lately are that uh, the arts far and away is uh, strong on advocacy and relentless. So good on us. But then we end up owning things that might not be ours, right? So if we are owning it, how in your community have we been impacted by it? Well, the, the costs of living in this city obviously continue to go up and the costs of working in this city continue to go up. And so, I mean, that links back to where Trinity St. Paul's is at, but also, so the other work I do is with a, a project called Regeneration Works. And Regeneration Works is a project of faith in the common good and the National Trust for Canada. So faith in the common good is interested in exactly what it sounds like, where faith communities writ large uh, connect with the common good. Um, so, you know, environmentalism and livability and all those kinds of things. 
And the National Trust for Canada is interested in historic buildings and how we keep them standing. So I've been working with them on regeneration works. And one of the things that we talk about all of the time is about not-for-profit ownership models. And the degree to which the process of gentrification is a market-driven process, right? And so people move to an area, that area then gets more services, it becomes desirable, then the prices go up because it's desirable, and then those who own those buildings see the opportunity for more profit because there is demand that exceeds the supply and therefore they raise the price. So that's a profit-driven model. But if you disconnect from that and you look at not-for-profit ownership models, then it's people over profit and mission over money, right? Mm -hmm. And so the Ontario Not-for-Profit Network, ONN, just put out a discussion paper about this a little while ago about why we need to engage in not-for-profit models. And, you know, the City of Toronto was talking about this as well in their social development, finance, and administration uh, division about how we um, disconnect a little bit from perpetual profit and reconnect with what people need, right? And so if profit stops being the driving force, then we stop that market push, right? Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that that can be done broadly. Of course, it can't be done broadly in our current system of economics, but it certainly can be done by key individuals. And so this is where Faith in the Common Good and the National Trust for Canada and Trinity St. Paul's and all kinds of other people come into play in talking about uh, buildings that are currently held in some kind of private trust or private public partnership situation, right? And so what brings us to this conversation today was the conversation that you and I had had about faith communities and about the fact that there are 27,000 faith communities in Canada. So second largest owner of land after the government of Canada. Um, now, Canadians don't particularly identify themselves as uh, churchgoers anymore. And that's cool. And I don't, I don't have a reasoning for that. There's lots of, you know, scholarly papers written about it, but I don't claim to understand the reasoning for that necessarily. But what it does mean is that there are a heck of a lot of large-scale buildings that were built for public gathering that are sitting mostly empty and that are run by people who mostly have a mission-based approach, have a people-over-profit approach. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I'm not going to say that's everybody. I, you know, each faith community has its own particular identity. But in working with Trinity St. Paul's, I think that was the thing that stunned me. Um, I went there for a particular reason that was personal and found myself pulled into a mission and vision that was about a lot of people, that was about community writ large, that was about what can be done for the good of that surrounding community. And now by sharing that vision, what can be done even more broadly to help people see how these faith buildings can be part of a, a re-engaged um, community center, a re-engaged conversation about choosing for people and choosing for mission. That was a really long answer to probably smaller question. Well, we have a very complicated topic that we're mm. trying to discuss. The, it, I don't think a few words can capture it. We're not there yet. There so we go. That's later, later we'll just right. have a keyword, Jessa. We'll just be like, people over profit. The <laughs> I, end. I like that. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, what do you think other artists that are low income or other vulner vulnerable groups can do to positively change the dynamic, the conversation, or potentially even offer some solutions to gentrification? Hmm. Well, 
are are there barriers to us being more involved? Like, what no. is the first step in getting artists and other vulnerable low income groups that are often not at the table to become more involved in in the kind of work that you're trying to do and other kinds of responses to this issue? Well, the first step is always advocacy. Um, the only way anyone is interested in anything is by people repetitively telling them that they should be interested. So I spend a lot of time taking meetings and um, speaking at organizations who, in theory, should not necessarily care, right? So I often speak at uh, city planning things or architectural events or at the National Trust for Canada conference because there are more people than we know who care about the communities that we're building now and who are engaged in trying to get back to a more grassroots approach to supporting each other, right? So we imagine that we're alone, but it's actually not true. We just have to keep telling our stories. And I think that sometimes what we don't understand as arts workers and and everybody is that uh, advocacy sounds like a big word, but it's just telling your story and then telling it again and then telling it one more time. And pausing when you tell it to think about who you're telling it to mm-hmm. and what the things are that they want out of the world and how you can help them to get what they want, right? So the city of Toronto just wants the city to run better, right? It just wants things to go well. So when you talk to the city of Toronto, you're appealing to that conversation. And an individual artist just wants a place they can afford to create their piece of art, And so that's the conversation that you're having with them. And so I think that it's important that we do that, but also that the arts community, I'm going to say something unpopular, uh, gets a little bit out of its head and um, stops imagining that we need centers that are built specifically for the thing that we do and that it's so specialized that it can't be part of a broader community approach. Um, I am a big fan of encountering the other, of on your way to rehearsal, encountering people who are different from you or that you find difficult to work through or, you know, getting slowed down by the person who needs help uh, across the street, right? Uh, I think that it's easy to go into your theater and create your work in your designed place that does exactly what you want. And, and never encounter the challenge to your vision of the world. And so I think it's important right now that we all try to encounter the challenge, right? So some of the work I'm doing in the next little while, I've gone out of my way to seek the alternate viewpoint to my leftist place of being. And uh, I suspect that's going to be difficult, but that's okay because hopefully on the other side of it, that alternate viewpoint will meet me partway and I will meet them partway and we'll get somewhere, right? We're not we're not winning by othering people right now. So can you tell us a little bit more about Regeneration Works and how you're involving the arts in the conversation? And you've been doing some tours, I understand. Yeah. With other churches. What have what have been what have you been seeing? Yeah. So the uh always um groundbreaking, always leading uh George Cedric Metcalf Foundation provided uh myself and Faith in the Common Good and Trinity St. Paul's and Arts Build Ontario and the Toronto Arts Council with just a, a little bit of funding under under a leading and learning grant to just go out and see 
what are the other models in which arts communities are successfully um, collaborating with, working in community with faith communities? And so we started in the U.S. and we did Philadelphia and New York last year, and then we finished this year in Montreal. So in the end, I think we'll have seen, well, they may correct me, but I think it's 18 or 20 faith communities and have seen some really fantastic models uh, for how faith communities are supporting the arts in really upfront ways. So it's not it's not happen chance. It's not on the side. It's a choice, you know. So in Philadelphia, we spent some time with Christ Church Neighborhood House, who built a wing in the 1920s to support things that were not faith-based. And so over the years, that has become focused around the arts. And they actually have a producer who goes out and seeks grants for the arts community that they bring into that space. And we met with uh, Rector Tim there. And every time we met with the faith leader, we would ask the question, you know, what about uh, the question of censorship? What if I want to tell this story or that story, you know? And Rector Tim was one of many who was very upfront about the fact that Neighborhood House is meant to do what the church doesn't, that it's church land, church property run by the church, but it is meant to do all of the other things, and that censorship was not something he was interested in engaging with. And that, of course, there's been some difficult moments where, you know, congregants have asked questions and then everybody's had a conversation, but the conversation has never resulted in anything being pulled from the stage, right? And then we met, you know, people in New York who were putting significant funding into the arts as a way to enlighten human condition and to tell uh, a story, right? And then here in Montreal, we're seeing similar things happening. Uh, you know, St. James United uh, is really approaching the arts as a, a way to move forward, as a way to uh, re-engage with humanity. And so that, of course, is something that, that Trinity St. Paul's has been envisioning itself as for a long time. But what was great was to bring arts leaders with me and to hear it from the horse's mouth. And then we came back and we did a, a small matching event, which I got to say, I, I didn't put I haven't put enough effort into the outcome after that yet. So we did an event down at St. Andrew's Presbyterian where we invited uh, arts leaders who were seeking for space and faith communities who were seeking to share their space to get to know each other. And coming out of that event, we've only had one match so far um, uh, going on and they haven't announced yet, so I won't announce it. I was just about to, but a visual arts collective has found a home within a faith community, which will be announced pretty soon. So that was good. And then, um, Richmond Hill United Church I'm working with right now, and we have community consultation coming up to connect them with both the arts in Richmond Hill and with the indigenous community, which is a couple of the areas that they've identified as an area of focus, but also possibly with healthcare and with ESL. And so, um, that community consultation has 87 community members coming, and we only invited 90. So uh, obviously there is an interest in how we use these large edifices for the community good. Because the thing is, we're not going to build them again, right? Uh, first of all, there isn't actually even the wood left in Canada to build these kinds of things. Uh, but second of all, we can't afford to. And so we need to hold the ones that have the appropriate place within their community that are well-regarded, that people feel welcome in, that they feel that there is an appropriate home for them and that are well-situated geographically and on transit and those kinds of things. We need to hold those for common good and figure out uh, how to help the 
broader community, connect with faith communities and find their common ground to create something for everyone. So there are 27,000 churches uh, now. How do we kind of find the ones that are the, the golden ones that we do need to save? And how do we involve the community in, uh, in determining which ones need to be saved? And uh, yeah. how, how, how much time do we have? Yeah, yeah. that's big questions. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much time we have. They're closing so fast. I think it was seven last week. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bit depressing, right? But so, um, there are data things we're working on to try to count, um, exactly the impact of all of those faith communities and who has already got standing relationships, and then to try to enhance those standing relationships to involve more people. Uh, because also like, let's be really clear. It's not just about sharing the space. It's also about, uh, uh, amortizing the cost of those spaces so that they remain standing, right? So it's it's the two sides of it. It's not one or the other. It's both. So Trinity St. Paul's offers significantly below market rents. <clears throat> but those significantly below market rents keep the building standing. So basically we're crowdsourcing the money to keep the building standing, to give it back to the community, to keep going, right? So that's the kind of things that we need to do. And so the finding of them right now has been just sort of a process of self-identification of people coming to me or to the National Trust for Canada, where they have various um, competitions that are about, you know, uh, crowdfunding for your spaces. And then you get a sense of who has strong support. Or sometimes they're identified by the diocesan structure. So by the United Church of Canada, by the Anglican Church of Canada, those kinds of things. Um, but we're going to have to get a lot more sophisticated about it if we're going to put them to good use. Like, you know, in my ideal world, so if we figure 9,000 are going to close in the next eight years, and I actually think we're... 9,000. Yeah. So I think we're actually underguessing that number. Um, it's a little hard. We're sort of, we're, you know, applying multipliers based on current data, but it's speeding up dramatically. Uh, so if 9,000 are going to close in the next eight to 10 years, uh... I would like to save 900, right? Um, so 900 is a lot. So that's going to take a lot of people of goodwill. You know, and individual communities are doing amazing work on this too. So St. Joseph Kingsbridge, a little place just outside of Goddard, where I was born, the community there, um, their faith structure could no longer support them and was going to close it down. And the community just um, went to the wall on it. They raised all the money themselves. Um, they purchased the building for a, a very nominal amount, extremely small amount, but then they did over $200,000 worth of renovations themselves as a volunteer committee. And they reopened it as an arts center, place to play cards, place to have your event, because for them, it was the last standing third place. So if your home is a place and your work is a place, a third place is the other one that doesn't belong to anybody in particular, and therefore everyone has license to be present. And so the community of St. Joseph Kingsbridge uh, just really came together and held that third space in this small rural community for themselves. And uh, that is just such a cool act of love and commitment, right? So those things are happening too. And then Weirdly, it's funny, right? When I first came into theater and I was uh, involved with PACT, the Professional Association of Canadian Theaters, who's a fantastic organization who I learned an incredible amount from, everybody was talking about governance all the time. 
And to be honest, as a 25-year-old, I thought that was the most boring conversation in the history of man, and I couldn't see how it related to art creation. Uh, but now working on regeneration works, governance is key, right? And so the question of how faith communities work with community and how they share power over those spaces is real. So, you know, there are places like um, the Spire of Sydenham in Kingston. So Sydenham United Church, realizing that the arts community was using their building a lot and that they all had things they wanted to do to make that space better, created a separate not-for-profit um, that now uh, has an equivalent amount of our community members and church members that have oversight for that building. So the building is still owned by the United Church of Canada. If anything happens, it's still the responsibility of Sydenham United Church. But the day-to-day structures of what they do and how they market and what their rates are and who gets to do what and how they raise funds for that building is managed by the Spire of Sydenham, which is a separate non-faith-based not-for-profit. And we're seeing those models uh, all over the place, actually, uh, in big ways and small ways that allow the community to have access, to have voice, and the the faith community to still maintain their buildings and to still have uh, control over what's happening, but to also have support, right? Faith communities are getting older. That's just the truth. And so they need the support of younger people from different backgrounds, too, to be a broader part of the world. And so when we look at governance, that can be a key way. It can be as small as a committee, but I love what the Spire of Sydenham did. They went pretty far, and it's been good for everybody, I think. From the arts community, to what extent do you think artists are satisfied with where they're living and where they're working, basically with their lot in life in our current built environments? And what do you think it's going to take assuming there's a certain degree of dissatisfaction, particularly around price, but um, accessibility and relevance also, like is the is the, the buildings that we're using actually relevant to our practices? And what do you think it's going to take to, to for those that are dissatisfied, for them to feel more satisfied in the future? Um, do you think there is a, 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 an opportunity for these faith-based uh, places to um, help artists become more satisfied with with their their um, contributions to community. Sure, I mean, yeah, artists are dissatisfied um, with their spaces for sure, and you know there are people who are working on that. I think it was a couple of weeks ago you you did a podcast with the Aiken Collective, Aiken Collective yeah. uh, and who I've met with them before as well. So there are people who are working on that, and yes, it is. A difficulty for the arts community, particularly because it requires big space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that a discontent with the difficulties of finding places to live is unique to the arts community in this city. No, you know, I I mentioned earlier about uh, the peers group and our refugees that we supported and the challenges of finding them what they needed and using our resources to find them what they needed. There are a lot of people in this city who don't have people doing that for them, um, who are, for various reasons, impoverished or unable to get out of their circumstances and who are are spiraling. So the arts community 
their problems, I think I focus around the, the scale of what they need is problematic, but that there is a strength, again, in being the arts community. Like, at least you're something, right? There's a, <laughs> there is a group of people with whom you share a, a common interest and a common vision and an ability to exchange things and ideas and hope and to work together on things. And not every community in this city has that advantage. There are many people who are desperately isolated within the context of the questions of gentrification. So I think that that is our strength. Um, is that collectivism and the ability to work together to crowdfund what we need. You know, there's been a lot of examples in the past year of various arts community people um, having unfortunate circumstances thrust upon them, whether it be, you know, health or welfare or whatever, and the community literally crowdfunding for them to help them through times like this. So strength is always found in community, I think. Uh, So there's that. Um, what was the second part of the question? What can, uh, so what extent are they satisfied and what do you think for those that are dissatisfied, what will it take for them to be, to change their, how they're feeling hmm. around because the well. shelter and workspaces. So for, for example, a literary artist, um, they might want to have a place that's not just their home, but they could do if they needed to a great deal of their work from home a dance artist or um, filmmaker might actually want a production studio. So they need a housing and a workspace. And it's what is the relationship between those two and can faith-based spaces um, help? Yes, faith-based spaces can help. It's, of course, not the only answer, which is why what Akin Collective is doing is important too. And mm-hmm. um uh, and for some people, unfortunately, the answer is leaving this city, which is a whole other choice and which is part of why I think the city of Toronto is concerned about these issues as well, um, because the the brain drain to Hamilton is real. Uh, but you know what? Hamilton's building some cool things, too. So I've and been... they actually have more problems in some in some uh, cases than Toronto does in terms of finding relative, relative, yeah. relative uh, relevance sorry, and good, appropriate, accessible spaces for the arts. Certainly for the presentation of it, yes. Better, uh, easier issues on housing, harder issues on, on spaces to present things for sure. So I've been working quite a bit there, actually, with the city of Hamilton and with the faith communities there as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that faith communities are a part of the solution. Um, but of course there's work to be done on that because, uh, there is a, uh, Canada was built on a, a secular sacred divide. Uh, we were built with the idea that, uh, uh, religion is separate from everyday life and it was built that way for good reasons, uh, to allow people to have the freedom to worship in the ways that they see fit. Uh, but the after effect of that is uh, a, a fear of faith and of faith buildings, right? And and of faiths that maybe are not our, our historical practice, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, overcoming that, I think, requires a warm introduction and a sense that, that we are all people with common visions and also helping each other to see common language. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is speed and communities. Speed and communities. Yeah. So when I came to Trinity St. Paul's, there was a really rough start there for about six months where I wanted everybody to hurry up and everybody wanted me to <laughs> slow down. And uh, it's uh-huh. taken a while for us to um, see each other's point of view. 
because uh, faith communities are deeply embedded in what's called a discernment process, a process in which many people have voice and are given a significant amount of time to uh, listen and contemplate and then respond and contemplate and then discuss again and contemplate. Um, arts communities, as I have explained to faith communities, uh, often have an opening night that does not move. And so the process of discernment is a great deal different and is based much more on intuition than on lengthy conversation. Like there's moments of lengthy conversation. We've all been in a rehearsal hall where you spend one whole day talking about one issue. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But then the next day you're going to get back on your feet and you're going to dramatize that because opening is still coming regardless of how much you think about the thing. So, um, it's not just arts and faith that that's the case for, but, uh, speed of how people speak and how they process becomes really important when you're trying to build partnerships. Uh, and it's the same thing when dealing with developers. Uh, the, the speed of developers is probably closer aligned with the speed of arts. Um, the speed of contractors, maybe not so much. But <laughs> it, it matters because people interpret those speed differentials as um, slights when they're not slights. Uh, it's not that... Uh, it's not that the arts community thinks that you're the slowest people in the history of men and you're not making a decision fast enough. It's that they actually have to get to their opening. And it's not that the faith community thinks that you're nasty artists who are going to destroy their space and so they're spending a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, their process is just way slower. And so helping people to understand that there is no slight intended, that there's just a process disconnect is important. And, and then asking ourselves why our process is what it is and what that means becomes a, a big question too, right? And, and so I think that, yes, that there is opportunities, uh, but the opportunities right now need management. And in general, what I think I'm pushing for is the concept that the way to overcome some of these forces of gentrification is by embedding more power in the hands of not-for-profit structures in general. Mm -hmm. So faith communities are certainly one of those not-for-profit structures, and they're one of the ones that I'm working with, although I have a museum I'm working on now too. So uh, there are lots of not-for-profit structures in which we can engage. You know, like you look at Campbell House, again, a, a museum that is hosting a lot of art right now. Yeah. So we have to look at what we already have and envision how it aligns with the things that we want to accomplish and then find the partner that is the right person to do that connecting. And I think the arts community is really awesome at finding the partner and finding the friend. It comes back again to crowdsourcing the knowledge, right? And are there things coming up next for you that you would like to let our audience know about? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, we're continuing to release some of the uh, blogs about the work that we did with the Metcalf Foundation on the leading and learning. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking for how we expand on that particular project. So how do we take this individual matchmaking that we were doing that had sort of limited success and expand that so that we have some kind of gathering place for all of these faith communities to uh, be able to be accessed by the arts community. You know, Arts Build Ontario, of course, has Space Finder, which is expanding all across this country, which is a fantastic resource. 
Uh, but the difficulty we're experiencing right now with that is so you go on Space Finder, you see a faith community that might work. First of all, you have to overcome your fear of faith communities, and then you have to get them to answer the phone. And uh, the nature of the um, what's happening in faith communities is that it, the timeline in which they answer the phone doesn't always meet the arts. So we're trying to figure out how to help those two things come together, and is there an initiative that we can do that uh, maybe is a conglomerate of a whole bunch of faith communities where you're calling one place. or But that's kind of the, the dream visions right now, right? And in the meanwhile, we're just at the beginning of a project, which we'll announce soon, of just gathering data about who are the not-for-profits who are already resident in faith communities so that we can measure the extent of the risk of the situation that we're currently in and start to work to put some stopgap efforts in place for the key communities that are already deeply engaged uh, with community at large. And so those are kind of the things we're, we're working on. And for me, it's, uh, again, just back to communities of people and conversation, right? Uh, people introduce me to people who introduce me to more people, much like how you and I met, um, that uh, open doors to worlds that I didn't necessarily know existed. So I think we just keep the conversation going. On that note, thank you, Kendra. Thank you. We look forward to seeing what happens next. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you.